One of rugby's great myths is that the forwards are always the unthinking heavy lifters, while the backs have all the brains. It probably comes from a small sample of players back in the sports sepia-toned past, but times have changed. Shark CEO Edward Kutsia was a prop and a very good one at that. He played super rugby for the Sharks, for South Africa A, and spent eight years playing in France for Biarritz. He's anything but unthinking or brainless. And as rugby enters a new post-COVID-19 world, the challenges that the game faced before the pandemic ravaged the planet have become exacerbated by six months of lockdown. Previous business models have to be torn up and re-engineered. For the next few years at least, professional rugby in South Africa, and globally too, will be in a precarious position. It will take bold, innovative young leaders such as Kutsia to navigate a way through these turbulent times. I'm Craig Ray, and welcome to the Maverick Sports Podcast this week, where we take a deeper look at the business of rugby with Ed Kutsia. Bonjour, Ed. How are you? How's it, Craig? Thank you so much for such a lovely intro. I would like to meet the person you were talking about one day soon, please. <laughs> well, Ed, you've done a great job there so far, but obviously this year has been a challenge. Maybe let's just kick off with COVID-19 because I guess that's still the hot topic in the world. We are going to go back to rugby. The local competition's about to start. But at the Sharks, how did you cope with COVID-19? What contingencies did you put in place? Because it's there's no textbook that could have prepared you for this, is there? Yeah, Craig, you know, it's been unbelievably tough. And I think it's been unbelievably tough from the point of view that it was for the first time, you know, a crisis that was faced by the world. So there's not there's not a preceding solution to this this issue we're facing, you know. So no one knows the extent of it, how long it's going to last, what the financial impact really will be. And I think from that point of view, you know, it was extremely tough. And also, like on the field, we were we were hitting our straps with quite a young Super Rugby team at the time, and we were leading the comp. So from that point of view, we were excited. And then we got COVID, and you know, financially, obviously, it had a had a huge impact on the industry. And we immediately took measures to try and minimize that impact without really knowing how long it will last and and what the true reality of the situation will be. So it. It has been challenging, but we, I think we've managed it reasonably well. The start of COVID, no one knew how long it would last. I guess that was another big issue. It's how long is this piece of string? You know, budget probably could allow for a month or two of no sort of income stream or, or, or fan income at the stadium through the gates, but that extended into six and seven months. You had to probably be quite flexible, I'd imagine, as a leadership in terms of adapting your strategies almost weekly. Yeah, I think, you know... <laughs> Often you go into an executive role in, in a business and, you know, you, you've got your formal education background um, that you can lean on, but you actually just find your own groove and, and manage your business from a day-to-day basis. But I think when something like this happens, you've actually got to go back to proper financial controls and structured finance and make sure that, that you're managing it as per, as per the book. Also, on another thing that becomes extremely important is your stakeholder relationships because, you know, your relationships with, with your staff has got to be strong because there's a level of trust that now immediately becomes because anxiety sets in because people aren't sure, you know, what their livelihood's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then also sponsors, you know, and our industry sponsors, season ticket holders, suite holders. So, yeah, it, there's a lot of relationships. I think the key to keep this whole thing together is a relationship thing too, you know. And again, you know, you can learn the sort of theory of that, but that comes down to personalities and personal relationships. We can get into a little bit more of the detail, but going back to the beginning, certainly from the outside looking in, South African rugby generally handled it pretty well. There was immediate sort of action to start a collective bargaining agreement talks because it became quickly apparent that, you know, at the very least, salary cuts were going to be part of the future. 
to uh, sustain the, the industry through this time. And, you know, through the various stakeholders, my players, SA Rugby itself, Sario, the employment organization, South African rugby as, a, as an industry, not just uh, the mother body I'm talking about, came together and, and, and really quickly came up with a collective bargaining agreement that looked like everyone bought into, you know, there might have been some people unhappy or not, but generally speaking, it, it was well managed. And I think it's probably saved the industry a lot more harm over these last six months. What's your take on the collective bargaining agreement? Yeah, Craig, you're 100% right. I think, I mean, these things are never easy to do. So there was a strong leadership from South African rugby. But you know, your initial reaction when you come to the table in a situation like this is to protect your own interest, you know, and I think there's a lot of a lot of that had to give way. Yeah. You know, so there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations and honest conversations to be held. But I, I must admit, I, I was really heartened by the, the way that South African rugby steered through this thing as a collective, you know, because this could have destroyed the professional game that would have destroyed the amateur game, you know, and, and I think just the way it's been done and with us returning to the field on Saturday, it looks like we've managed this this crisis, you know, even though there will be some long damage to, to our structures, but I think we, we came through this, okay, we'll be all right. Yeah, look, I mean, there's no doubt that you know, income is down. The, the rugby industry had budgeted to cut 1.2 billion rand you know, in terms of savings this year. That might be slightly less if the rugby championship goes ahead and this domestic competition, the Curry Cup slash Super Rugby competition that's going to go ahead. I guess that means broadcast revenue opens up a little bit more. There's a, a little bit more money in your coffers as a, as a union. Is that quite a relief, especially at this time of the year? It is a huge relief. I think there's a there's various aspects to why this is a relief. Obviously, financially, um, there's the hope of, of of some relief on on that side. But then also, you know, if you manage a team, and and you've got talented youngsters that are a generation that aren't the most patient generation around, but to get them back playing and back active and and give them their purpose and significance back, you know, because I think for professional sportsmen, they've driven quite a lot through what their purpose is you know like their purpose are to entertain and to to be the best they can be and if you take that away a lot of the guys found it difficult but i think from that point of view it was it was quite heartening to to just get the green light first to return to train and then to play because from a sponsorship and, and finance point of view you know you're dealing with one person on the other side and you know like our sponsors have been unbelievable they've just been so supportive you know and and it just just shows you that sport is is a true unifier because they they didn't let us go they didn't just turn their back up on us and and they committed to see us through this um this time so i think from that point of view it was it was heartening and my my biggest challenge i found was just to keep the players mental state looked after because you know like you don't want to lose one of them mm. so i think from that point of view we excited that the boys are back well, that mental state, early on in the collective bargaining negotiations, there was the 21-day clause inserted into the negotiations where players could leave, you know, they had 21 days to perhaps find alternative employment. It was highly unlikely that too many were going to jump ship because there weren't that many jobs going as the world shut down. But was, was, that, was that a particularly stressful period for you? Because, you know, you probably have some very key players that, that might have attracted some big offers from overseas. Yeah, that was horrible. Eh? And, you know, the thing is, Immediately when something like that happens, you know, it, it breaks a trust relationship. And, and my first thing with the players was to let them know that they haven't done anything wrong. You know, no one's asked for the situation to come about. No one has asked for COVID to hit the industry. You know, the salary 
reductions are a necessary evil. And the fact that my players organized a 21-day window, you know, isn't the player's fault. So we encouraged open conversation and we encouraged transparency around that and, and try to see within the, the strict lines of that collective that didn't allow us to pay any discretionary bonuses within the period, how we could keep them happy. You know, and I think that our personal relationship that we've built up uh, over the last bit with the players helped us. And yeah, I think we're one of the franchises that are really happy with, with the result of it. You know, we lost one player in the 21-day window. We at a stage, I was nervous about 11. Wow, <laughs> that would have been disastrous. I suppose I did speak to my players at the time and they said, in theory, all 717 players on their books could have gone in that 21-day in that period, theoretically. Of course, it was never going to happen that way, but they were also kind of nervous. But I guess it was that, that negotiation and that give and take you were talking about earlier. You know, it wasn't easy, but it was something that, that had to be inserted in there to, to try and you know, give the players some sort of out if they felt that you know, the, 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 the situation was too harsh in South Africa. Yes and no. And I mean, I, I did have the discussion with my players at the time and I saw their point of view. But, you know, we were the only only country that had a, a window. I mean, we were probably the only country that was really exposed because of our currency, you know. So from a point of view of how many players could have left, yeah, I agree with you, not 700 players would leave. But our focus will be on 10, you know. So if we lose only 10, but it's our top 10, you know, it, it, it destroys our industry, our business. And we might lose sponsors because, you know, sponsors want to be associated with winning teams with high-profile players like Mapimpi and Corsi, Bosch, you know, Thomas Atoy, those type of players. So if you lose them, that can adversely affect over and above COVID-19 your, your sponsorship revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of players and, 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 and the economic climate, I mean, South Africa is and has been for the last decade or more, I mean, you yourself played overseas for many years, has been a net exporter of talent, really, because of the currency situation mainly, but yeah, for various other reasons. Do you see a post-COVID world as we, as we sort of stumble into this post-COVID world? Do you see that changing a little bit because Northern Hemisphere clubs maybe aren't as well healed as they, as they might have been pre-COVID? Craig, yeah, I think, I think the quantum of players that are leaving, I think, might, might go down. Just because of basic economics, you know, there's also local player quotas in, in France, for instance, where they've got a system called the GIF that caters to players that come through their local academies that has to play in the 23. So that that is clamped down quite severely on the number of foreigners they can have in that league. And then I do think there will be a correction in the in the market for the top players. You know, I think you'll always have the marquee players that will attract big salaries. But I do think for a period of three to four years, there'll be a correction in the market because a lot of those clubs are are running artificial business models, you know, that's not actually sustainable. And I think a pandemic like COVID-19 will expose that even further. And I think that, to me, I expect a, a slowdown uh, in the number of players going, a slight correction in the in the market for, for what they will pay for the players. But I do think where our risk always is our high-profile players, and they will always attract a, a big contract. Yeah, you're talking about those those models, the European model. They're not necessarily sustainable businesses. I, I presume you're referring there to the sort of rich benefactor who owns the club and pumps in his own money. And you know, as long as he's interested or she's interested, that's that's great. But if they lose interest, the actual business isn't sustainable. Is that is that the, what you what you meant by that? Yeah, correct. I, I mean, if you take an example, when I, I went overseas to France in 2005, I played for a club called Biarritz. We we won the French Championship in that period over th three times. We played the Hanukkah Cup final twice. 
And our benefactor was a guy called Serge Kampf, who started a, a company called Capture Mini. And at the time when I, I arrived in France, Racing Metro was in second division, Toulon was in the second division, Bordeaux was in the second division, and Bézier, Narbonne, all those teams were powerhouse teams, you know. And unfortunately, Search, Search Camp passed, uh, passed away and Biritz lost their money and they found themselves in the second division now. Hmm. So, you know, there's this artificial, I mean, if you look at what's happening at Montpellier, for instance, Mode Altrad, who's, I think, got the third uh, largest fortune in, in, in France, he's, he funds Montpellier. And, you know, Montpellier is now a powerhouse. So Jackie Lorenzetti at uh, Racing Metro, Murat Bujalal at, at Toulon, you know, they've, they've they, they prop up the the club's finances, and I think that's what what I mean with artificial. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but I guess that brings us to the South African talk of private equity coming into South African teams and particularly professional teams. We've seen yeah, Jan Rupert and Patrice Motsepe at the Bulls. They own seventy four point nine percent, I believe. There's talk at Western Province, certainly from a storm as the Western Province company point of view. There's this American consortium. A Durban boy, actually, Marco Mazzotti, who from who, Toti, <laughs> from Toti, exactly. I actually did ask him why he didn't want to go to the Sharks. Yeah. <laughs> he said, "Well, he just feels that the Stormers is a more attractive proposition." I wasn't going to argue with him, you know. Table Mountain, I guess. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not a done deal, and it probably won't be a done deal given the politics in Western Province rugby. There is attraction, but. Is it dangerous as well? It, I mean, you know, how do you strike that balance between the sort of rich private equity person who's putting in the money, but still having a sustainable business in the event they walk away? Yeah, Craig, I think that is extremely important. You know, if you, if you look at the the business of sport, you know, I, I don't know too many sporting franchises that make big profits. So generally, you you run a break even budget, you know, and and if unforeseen things happen during the year. You know, you can quickly run into a negative, and I think that's where that's where private equity partners are quite important. You know, just just for the in case, so that's quite nice. But on the other side, yeah, it's it, it's it's important to, if possible, find a, a equity partner that's aligned with your culture and and your vision. You know, because um, you often see it in the European clubs where someone will buy a club and the whole culture changes. You know? And I think South Africa, there's there's obviously like a a long history um, in sport and also like, you know, post-94. So there's each union's got a very, or each province in South Africa has got a very distinct culture and a very distinct, you know, way of doing things. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how private equity matches into that and if it's actually going to change the, the culture of the game in the country. Yeah, and I mean, that's, uh, it's a big if at the moment if, you know, these things uh, these things happen. And I guess uh, the idea with private equity, as you say, if you're sort of running a, a break-even budget is, I suppose the temptation is there to overspend if you've got $100 million in the bank because now you can go buy some marquee players because there's this money there, but, you know, that money could also disappear overnight kind of thing. Uh, so I guess there's, you've got to have financial discipline even though there might be cash reserves. Correct, and I think that's extremely important. You know, it is an atypical business. You know, it's not a it's not a typical business where you know you you've got fixed costs that are always fixed. You know, they, you're almost a victim of your success if you if you start with a young team that's relatively inexpensive. After a year of playing uh, good rugby, you your team expense goes up by twenty percent. You know, so uh, it's very hard to do medium and long term planning in a structure that that that's got so many variables. And how do you do it in rugby? I mean, the, uh, you, you could sign Dan Carter at his best, comes to the Sharks, and you, you, you spend 10 million rand a year, and then he breaks his knee in the first game, you know, for argument's sake. 
Yeah, how do you mitigate against that as a sports business, but particularly a rugby business? To take your, your example of signing a big name like a Dan Carter, I think you sort of know what you're committing to. And you know your commercial deliveries are, are easier quantifiable on, on a signing like that because he brings like a celebrity profile to the business. The big risk is where you have uh, players like, uh, let's use an example of the Sharks, do not have a go at other units, uh, Afalile Fassi, for instance, who we took out of Dale College. And uh, year two, I mean, he came in on a bursary year two, he shot the lights out. You know, Now you've planned your player budget, but now you've got to accommodate this player because he's now, in a year, gone from not on the radar to one of the top two in the in the country, and the year after he's competing for a test match position. You know, so hmm. if if you do a three year plan, you could have never almost predicted that that you're going to have that. And if you have one that's manageable, but if you have five, six of them, yeah. <laughs> it uh, yeah, it, play, it it creates holes in the bucket. I can imagine. And typically, what does the South African rugby franchise do? Do you go to the sponsors, ask them to dig a bit deeper to keep someone there? And, and they might see the value in that because the guy's profile and he brings you know value to their brand as well? I think it depends on, on, on your business. I think the, the Bulls, as you mentioned earlier, that they've got uh, two guys that they can knock on the door for. And I'm sure they'll get a favorable response. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. But we, we find ways. I'm sure you do. And especially, I suppose it works the other way too. You've put a three-year plan in place for a guy and he doesn't develop or isn't as good as you thought he was. So I suppose yeah. the risk factor works the other way as well. Although in that case, you can try and offload him, although yeah. that would probably be at a loss compared to what you had budgeted for. Yeah, and also I think you've got to have probability cases for all these scenarios. You know, So like if you have a budget of, say, 100 rand, maybe in the first year spend 80 rand because you anticipate that you're going to have some of those outer lining players that are that are going to shoot the lights out. You know? So you, you leave some fat in your budget, but it's not easy. And and then, yeah, in terms of building a team, Ed, like the Sharks, as you said, before lockdown came, I think six out of seven games, you had one in Super Rugby riding high. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the team in, in, in a moment, but just in terms of building a team, what what's to you as a CEO in I know rugby decisions, you'll leave to your rugby people in, in that sense. But yeah, you've got to do the budget. You've got to do the planning with them. What's most important? A very good coach, a very good academy, very good recruiting, a mix of all those things. How do you sort of build a team to to deliver in a few years? Because it's not a, you could, yes, if you had an unlimited budget, you could buy 20 superstars and do what you like and hope for the best. But you look at Liverpool Football Club under Jurgen Klopp, it took them sort of four and a half years and they won the league. It was a steady progression. Uh, is that kind of the model you look to as a as a business? Craig, you know, the thing is, it's very hard to answer your question because you can look like a fool quite quickly because we can say this is what we're doing and this is why we're successful. And then you have two, three games in a row where you get an absolute hiding where, where sport's just an ultimate leveler. But I think what we've done at the Sharks, and it started with Gary. First of all, let me let me just pause on Gary Tashman for 10 seconds. I think he doesn't get enough uh, credit. You know, he's an unbelievable guy. Who, who loves rugby and, and he's a good person. You know, strategically what he, he did, he settled a rough uh, a ship on the rough seas. And for the last two years under his guidance, I, I was allowed to, to put structures in place, you know, obviously with his input into what I believe was going to be a sustainable future for the Sharks, you know. And I, and I think if you look at five years ago, we had a, a top-down approach. We would go by the likes of Villarou, Jacques Bukita, Marco Wenzel, you know, established 
really good players at, at a premium, bring them in to try and get a short-term fix. That didn't really work out so nicely for us. And, you know, when, when Gary and myself sat and spoke about it, I said, Gary, should we not do a bottom-up approach? You know? And he says, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, let's rebuild our whole structure. And, you know, we, we created a structure for, for a player pathway. So it was, I think, 2018 when it was our first year. And Sean Everett was coaching the under-19 team. And the year before, so in, during 2017, we agreed on the structure. And we went and fetched the, the best under-19 players that suited our culture from all over the country. First of all, we started in the province from all over the country. And we, we built accommodation at the stadium. And we really sort of almost raised them into through our culture. you know. And, and they were really a really strong squad. And we've done it now. We're in year three of that plan. And I think we're seeing the fruit from it from that structure now. So now, now you can bring one or two players like Amani Lubbock and Ivana Kock in. But the reality is you're going to have Jaden Hendricks, Sanele Nahamba, Afalele Fasi, who actually come through your structure that, that's a fight with your culture. And I think that's fr- from, from a, st- a structure point of view, what, what we've done in the last three years, that, that's, that's helped us a lot. And then also on the coaching side, I think what I believe is, I believe if your culture is strong enough and the structures are, are, are correct, then the, the head coach should come out of your system. And the reason why that's important is because he knows the players. He knows the guy who came here as a Dale first-team fullback who never played Cromie because he was 19 um, in the trick fussy, and he knows the quality. You know, where if you bring maybe a coach from overseas, say, let's take a, any name, a Todd Blackadder, you won't know that. And, and he will then want to bring in his own assistants, his own medical, you know, a whole group of players and that will cost a lot of money you know so i think from a business point of view we we had the structure on the player side that we built that we're in year three now that's paying all for us so the bottom-up approach and then within our coaching structure we've created a high performance coaching environment we you know should sean get promoted to coach the springboks one day you know in our structure we've got brent jans van rensburg dave williams piwinon klomu etienne finn Michael Vowles, you know, like a lot of coaches that can step up knowing the culture. And I think that's, that is our plan, to be honest with you. And it sounds you know, sensible. And I guess it sounds easier said than done. I'm sure it takes a lot of work to get all those things, uh, you know, all those aspects working together because people have personal ambitions. So a guy as an assistant coach sits behind Sean Everett. He might not want to hang around because there's other offers that come. And I suppose you have to deal with those kind of situations on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think the easiest way to deal with those things is, is to be honest, you know, as part of our culture is, you know, we, we – strive really hard to have a good culture at the Sharks, but one of the things is it's not a soft culture. So, you know, my commitment to to the staff and the players are that I will treat them unbelievably well. And if you unpack that as my understanding of treating someone unbelievably well is to be honest with them, you know, and to have difficult conversations. So, yeah, that's the basis of what we build our, our, our franchise on. Now, you've spoken about how you build a successful team, but what you've also managed to do, Ed, is build a brilliantly transformed team, and I mean that in the most basic sense in South African terms, in racially transformed, which which is an important thing in South Africa. We've seen, uh, you know, we've seen that, and we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement come into sport, and the Sharks team has been wonderfully transformed. And you told me a story months ago, I think we spoke before lockdown, uh, and you said, as an Afrikaans boy growing up in South Africa, I knew about apartheid, and I knew it was wrong, but I was raised believing that rugby was a white man's sport. Now, maybe just take us a little bit through your personal journey, how you, you've come to sort of change your views over time and experience. 
Yeah, thanks, Craig. I think, you know, my background is I, I was born in a little area called Babsfontein on a farm. You know, my mom and dad, uh, lovely people, but Afrikaans, and I'm Afrikaans. And I, you know, I'm very proud to be Afrikaans. You know, I'm, I'm not apologetic to be Afrikaans. I'm very proud. I went to Afrikaans with Sien School Afis, and I'm very proud of my history. But you also get to a point in, in life where you start questioning things around you, you know. And I, I wanted to understand why certain things are, and, and you actually question yourself. And I married an unbelievable woman, Sarah, who's English. So from a culture point of view, I started seeing blended culture and, and trying to understand what it is to just look outside of, of your immediate surroundings, you know. And what I realized is that, you know, if you look outside, it doesn't mean that you that you discount what you're about or where you're from, you know. But you need to go and explore what's outside to understand what is the, the feeling that you're struggling with inside, you know. And I think that at the Sharks, we try and bring that to the fore. We've got Heritage Day tomorrow and we've, we've just launched a, a Isavavani monument where the idea is it's at Johnson's Kings Park and can, you can enter this monument from four directions that, you know, like north, east, south or west. And what it what it means and what I said to the boys today is like we all come from our own direction. We all have right. our color, you know, unique color, diversity, culture, background, and that's good. And we've got to celebrate that, you know, never be apologetic for where you're from because it's who you are. It's what shaped you, you know. But if you come into the shop, there's a Vavani structure, you know, you've got to put your rock down. So I don't know if you know, Craig, but in, in Zulu, Vavani literally means to put your stone upon the pile. Mm. And in the Zulu culture, one should never walk past a pile of rocks and not honor it, you know, so it's without adding a rock to the pile. No, I didn't know. Okay. You know, and I don't know. It's, I actually studied a little bit. And the arrangement of the stones in Isavavani is contributed by diverse people over many years. And so another way of seeing Isavavani is a form of collective, collectively performed memory. Right. In respect of the journey that you come from. And I've actually built a physical structure at the Sharks to say, like, listen, guys, we've got to have this collectively performed memory. You know, because that shapes our culture. That's what's going to make us strong. That's that's what's inclusivity. Right. You know, diversity through inclusivity means that we're a diverse group, but the inclusivity binds us. And, and the day you feel you can't be yourself at the Sharks, then our, our culture's failed, you know. So what, what the guys do is, like, and we had the, the ceremony this morning where each guy had a rock and, and you can put whatever you, you can. We gave them a pen and they can write whatever they want on the rock and they can put the rock on the pile, you know. But if you put your rock down, it can you know, mean a lot of things. It can, can let go of your weapon, your anxiety or your fears. Mm. And, you know, if you look at Mandela's vision of the open hand, you know, that open hand is the same hand that held cold iron bars for 27 years, you know, that couldn't love or hold his, his family for 27 years. Yet it was the same hand that reached out to shake the hand of the enemy when he got released, you know. And that's what I said to the guys, you know, drop, let's put our rock on, is it, on the shelf as a Vani pile. Yeah. And it just, just unifies us as a group, you know. So we really try and educate our players a lot, you know, because I don't want them to lose the individuality. Yeah. You know, but I want to buy into a greater cause of a diversity through inclusivity. It's fascinating that you do that. And I guess, like anything, it stems from leadership. And I guess, as you say, players will come from very different backgrounds. Some will be hyper-conservative. Some will be, <laughs> you know, the other way. And some will be party animals. And you've got to blend all these these people into into one unit. And I guess that's a constant evolving, I wouldn't say problem, but evolving challenge for, for you as, as leadership. Yeah, Craig, it is. And you'll never control it. And controlling is the wrong, wrong, wrong word to use. But here's one way of managing it. So if, if your pathway and your structure is fine, you know, then the players that come through your pathway, like we have now in year three, will all be aligned with the Sharks' vision because the culture will spit out the, the guys that aren't. And I mean, it's, you're going to get guys who are unbelievable record players, but they don't fit into your culture. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they will move on. 
So if we do our work right at the ground and we've, we formulate a culture and a structure and this pipeline is healthy and it, and it produces top players with the right culture, then you only have to bring one or two players in. You know? And over the last two years, I've made a point so whenever a player signs to come to the Sharks, I go and see him in his hometown. You know, I, I drove to Blum to, saw, to see Oxenchair, Inka Fenter, you know, I flew to Cape Town to see Van Cock mm. and Dan Uister, you know, like, because it's important. Uh, the only guy I didn't see, to be fair, is Monty Lobok because it was locked down and uh, the Bulls <laughs> gave us a gift. So that was unbelievable. But I did apologize to him for that. But I've had, had him at our house since then, you know. But Madosh, I went to go see. James, I went to go see. Uh, because they need to understand what they're coming into, you know, like we've, we also, you know, significance for success. So we've got Ubuntu that we lean on. I am because we are, you know, I can't be a good CEO if these players are yeah. all over the place and, you know, destroying culture and countercultural, you know, and they can't be good players if, if, if we don't run a solid business and can't pay them every month. Again, it sounds simple and straightforward, but it's often not seen in business and in rugby in, in particular. We won't go pointing fingers at any rugby unions right now, but that is a challenge that's facing rugby though, Ed. Yeah, you touched on it there. My players came out with a fairly scathing uh, statement recently just about the fact that you know, amateur unions are you know, going into liquidation and then you know, sort of re-emerging with another company and players are being left as collateral damage uh, you know, through these companies closing. And, and I guess... I suppose the bigger picture here is we are we seeing a natural contraction of the rugby model. COVID might have accelerated it, but yeah, is 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 this pie for rugby going to become smaller and more focused and consolidated? I think the pie is the same, to be honest with you. I think it's just the the, the slices you take out of the pie needs to maybe be equated a little bit different. It is tragic that players lose their jobs, you know, in a way that that happened. I wouldn't like to. Uh, you have too much to say about that but you know i believe if, if if you if you take the basic principles of of governance and you know good corporate governance and you apply it into business you know listen especially in a period like COVID, no one's bulletproof you know i think we've seen successful businesses take big hits and, and close down so you know no one is is bulletproof against COVID 19 but i think if you can see if you can see there's a lead up and there's sufficient red flags your governance principles should kick in place and make sure that that you don't you don't trade recklessly in a, in a way that that you can expose people and and you know have have such a such a sad situation like that we're dealing with now because it does affect the industry it affects the image of the industry you know and, and for South African rugby and sorry it's not good because you know last year we won the World Cup and there's a positive narrative and, and feel around it and I think for them too it must be extremely frustrating to have these things. Ed, I don't know how much you can say about the future structure of, of the game, but I mean, I understand through through people I've spoken to that the four South African sort of super rugby franchises with Sands are, I wouldn't say breaking up completely, but certainly uh, splintering slightly, that we are now scheduled to end up playing European rugby with uh, in a Pro 16 format, but Sands will still continue at a sort of a test level. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to answer this, but just your sort of broad sort of feelings on the future of rugby as it as it relates to the Sharks, really, uh, where are you going to be playing or how, how do you feel about where you're going to be playing or, or what possibilities are on the table? Hey, Craig, I'm so disappointed that I actually agreed to this podcast because I thought you were going to tell me what's happening. <laughs> well, I can tell you what I know and then you can tell me what you know. <laughs> well, look, I've heard the Pro 16 is going to happen with the South African 4 franchise. Of course, that hasn't been confirmed anyway yet. So uh, let's, let's, let's put that in the, in the realms of, of uh, 50-50 informed opinion. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, Craig, to be honest, I, I don't have a, a defined direction where we're going. We're in the process of, of having those discussions. You know, but I look at the Sharks and, and, and you know, what, what we've achieved in the last 25 years. I think Brian Fonsell did an unbelievably good job in taking this, the, you know, an East team and taking the Sharks from uh, the Banana Boys into this brand that's, that's you know, like if you look at research, one of the, the strongest brands in provincial world rugby. You know, so I think from a point of view, it's we're excited to go where, wherever there's a challenge. And, you know, I think there's, personally as a player, I played in, in, in Super Rugby. So, you know, there'll definitely be a, if, if that is the, the reality that, that that's finished now, I think that'll be sad in a way that there's a lot of good memories. But like anything, one thing in sport that's a constant is change. So I'm sure that whatever competition structure is going to be announced, I'm sure it'll be exciting for fans. And, you know, the thing is, if we play north, well, I'm, well, I can say I think just it'll be more equitable in terms of uh, travel because you want to play in competitions you can win. And there's no ways that South African rugby teams are, you know, I think South African rugby, uh, the Bulls have won Super Rugby three times and, and that's the only team in 20 years. Yeah, 25 years, yeah. Yeah, in 25 years. And there's no ways that we are three out of 25-year country. You know, we've won the World Cup. More <laughs> exactly, we won the World Cup three times in 25 years. <laughs> yeah, but the reality is if you, if you finish second in Super Rugby, Mm. Uh, you know, you go play away against a team like the Crusaders. You get there on a Wednesday evening. Yeah. You know, you jet lagged and you hang on for first half and then you end up losing. And we saw that with an unbelievably strong Lions team three years in a row, you know, where, where they dominated the competition. They slipped up somewhere through Super Rugby, finished second and they had to go and play abroad or, you know, like had to travel and that affected them. So I think from a, from a logistics point of view, North should be better. Yeah. And I think also from a broadcast point of view, it might be because you'll have more games in prime time. So, yeah, listen, I, I don't have all the information and the answers. I, I hopefully we'll have it soon. Mm. So we can do our planning for 2021. But yeah, I, I think it's exciting. Absolutely. And I think on that note, Ed, it's been really uh, interesting. Thanks for giving us some insights into, yeah, just the business of running a, a rugby franchise in this country. And yeah, all strength to the Sharks. Best of luck in the new competition and, and the way forward. And hopefully you come join us again when, when we know what the new competition structure looks like. Yeah, thanks, Craig. And, and I think it's an exciting new uh, competition starting. You know, we're sending a, a young team to Loftus, which can go either way. But, you know, we've got such talented youngsters and we need to see what they can do. So, yeah, I'm excited about the, the season ahead. I think our boys are just like they like racehorses waiting for the, the gates to open. <laughs> So hopefully they just don't exhaust themselves in the first 10 minutes. But yeah, it's exciting times. And I think it's, you know, it's just a beacon of hope for, for a nation that, that sports um, starting again because, you know, it distracts people from their realities. Absolutely. Ed Goodseer, thanks so much for your time. Good to chat. Thanks, Craig. This podcast is made possible by our Maverick Insiders. Please consider becoming part of our Maverick Insider community where, for a nominal fee every month, you are supporting quality independent journalism. You also get some cool benefits such as Uber vouchers and engagement with our journalists thrown in. Please go to dailymaverick.co.za forward slash insider to sign up and become part of the Maverick Insider community. And also remember to sign up to our Maverick Sports newsletter, which hits your inbox on a Monday and never miss another podcast by signing up via your favorite platform. I'm Craig Gray. Thanks for joining us this week. Mm-hmm.